So three characteristics, um, kind of classical uh, <coughs> Buddhist teaching that many of you will be familiar with. Um, if we briefly move to a much more modern kind of idea and vocabulary uh, concept, living life to the full. So I've heard that a fair amount, uh, and sometimes it's kind of conveyed as the point of practice. The point of practice is to live life to the full. Um, so, excuse me, um, I heard this in a talk one time, and I can't quite even remember who gave it, but um, years ago, and someone describing a walk <coughs> that they'd done when they were on retreat at Guy House, and he was describing how something had been going on in his mind and he, in preparing for this walk, so um, maybe it was towards the end of the tree and it was a little longer walk or something, and he was trying to arrange the perfect experience or day um, as he, perhaps he was transitioning out of retreat. And in so doing that, he in fact missed the opportunity to be present to the trees and, and the breeze, etc. on his walk because he was... Um, kind of busy figuring out stuff, I think, about what he, how he was going to have the perfect day. Um, and uh, this was in the context, I think, if I remember, of, of explaining and emphasizing um, living life to the full as the aim or the purpose of the path in practice. And as I said, I've come across that in quite a few places. So, so um, let's... Again, it's an idea. Uh, there's quite a lot involved in it, and, and maybe just to say a few things about it. Um, is that idea of living life to the full, as it's commonly uh, conveyed, or as it's commonly understood, let's say, because um, a person might be meaning a certain thing by it, and someone else understands something differently, but as it's either commonly uh, meant or commonly understood, um, is it actually living life to the full. So it's quite, a, it's quite a big phrase, living life to the full. What might be missing? Um, so, or what's involved in that phrase, and what's left in that idea, and what's left out? Um, <clears throat> if uh, this person had been walking and perhaps consumed in thinking or outrage at some... Um, I don't know, political injustice or trying to understand something in the Dharma, would that be disqualified from living life to the full? Because they were really wrapped in that? Um, or is it dependent on how mindful one was of the experience? Like, I really know now I'm doing this thinking or, or whatever. Um, or just being lost in it. Does that kind of influence whether we consider it as living life to the full or not. If one was walking and, and one says one was lost in nature, does that living life to the full or not? So it's somehow wrapped up with the eye, or it can be wrapped up in the way we hear it or the way it's communicated as somehow being related to mindfulness in, in a modern sense. Um, but it's not quite clear. Um, to me at least. Um, what is clear that I, I would guess that the, probably the more usual notions of, say, being present or being mindful do not imply or include um, a sensitivity to or a perception of anything more than what we've been calling the flatly material, um, let's say, in nature, um, or an attention... Uh, that is more than kind of flatly sensual. Um, so there's that. There's a, there's a kind of unidimensionality, if it, or a very limited dimensionality to the the sensitivity and the perception. Um, although there is a, a kind of awareness uh, um, along with sensing of say mental movements that might be happening at the same time, or awareness of how one is. Um, interacting with the experience, with aversion, with craving, with thinking, with planning, or whatever. Um, but dimensionality, um, 
in that kind of presence or awareness or mindfulness as it's typically understood, um, or not say typically as it one of the ways it's commonly understood. Let's just say that um, is 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 uh, missing or limited. And sometimes it's even construed as an awareness that excludes or shaves off any sense of dimensionality. So it's exactly that. We're just cutting off and being really, really simple um, and kind of the bare actuality and all that. So one could say, um, and and some people would want to be um, kind of all-inclusive uh, and kind of open and say, oh, but seeing the, sensing the dimensionality and divinity or whatever of things can be or even is included in that mindfulness and in living life to the full. But the fact is, again, I'm talking about influences of ideas here. The fact is, um, however, it's not mentioned much at all. Like, we don't, we don't really have that language yet in, in, in the wider culture. Um, so it's not mentioned much about dimensionality and divinity. Um, uh, in in the wider culture, but also in 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 our teaching culture. Um, so when we use common phrases like being present to the moment, or um, the touch of life, or the breeze on the cheek, um, uh, we we use those phrases quite a lot as teachers. But if we only um, use those phrases and talk um, that way, um, then it may be that those phrases have um, kind of with them in the minds and souls of the speakers and the listeners all kinds of um, fantasies and ideas, cosmologies and visions of awakening. Again, sometimes they're spelled out and sometimes they're not. So again, talking about how pervasive and subtle can be the ways that ideas come into the way we communicate, the way we think, the way we listen, the way we speak. Um, but I would say that probably the more dominant um, interpretation or framework kind of underpinning and connected with that kind of language of being present to the moment, being open to the touch of life, being present to the breeze on the cheek and all that kind of stuff, um, is kind of more implicitly materialist, um, simply sensual in the sense of truncating or cutting off any kind of dimensionality in the way that we would uh, use that use that word. Um, it's what I would call a kind of modernist understanding, kind of it's shot through with a modernist or underpinned, undergirded by a modernist understanding. Um, or sometimes a kind of um, simply unitive, a kind of some kind of mystical oneness is is going on, even if that the, the speaker is meaning something different, a person hears it that way. So these are the kind of common ideas that influence this um, this kind of language um, or or the kind of concepts that we often use when we're talking about mindfulness, the kind of phrases that we often use um, when we're talking about mindfulness. Um, so someone who is listening from the perspective of those more common views um, won't have their perspectives and ideas challenged or expanded if we just stick to those same phrases. Someone who um, might be open to perceiving dimensionality um, is not really having that openness and those ways of looking supported by the teachings unless it's explicitly mentioned, unless it's drawn out, elaborated on, filled out, um, uh, pointed out. Um, usually it's not the sensing of dimensionality, that um, level of experience and that potential function of mindfulness is uh, usually not being drawn out, not being legitimized, not being given value, not being prioritized, amplified, explained, or understood more widely um, because it's not being articulated, because the, uh, the ideas don't get a sense to function as seeds because, because the... Uh, it's not being drawn out in the communication. And as I said, um, some people would say, uh, well, good, because that kind of business about dimensionality doesn't have any place at all in the Four Noble Truths. And then we're back to this whole debate about what is awakening and what are the Four Noble Truths and where does soul-making fit with that? I've been through all that. 
But we could ask, living life to the full, come back to that, living life to the full, um, am I living life to the full if the soul dynamic of eros, psyche, logos, um, and its mutual insemination, expansion, etc., is cramped and blocked? How full, whatever that means, how full can such a life be? Um, that soul-making dynamic is a part of life. Um, even if we've never heard of it, even if it's um, uh, on, only functioning in a limited way, it's part of life, it's part of how the psyche works, we could say. And as I've pointed out before, without the expansion of psyche logos, um, and without the expansion of psyche and logos, then the, the, the eros and the pothos can only expand outwards, horizontally, at the same level, um, flatly, one, unidimensionally, to more and more, having trying to get more and more experience of at that same level, or of the same kind or whatever. So then, then living life to the full becomes about, now I'm going to bungee jump, and, and what are they called, bucket lists, and, and all that, and... Um, Traveling more widely, or, uh, or, or it becomes uh, an endlessness of this kind of one-dimensional mindfulness, flat mindfulness, so-called presence to uh, a, a, a so-called or so-seeming reality that's actually limited in depth. Well, actually, what happens? Long-term practitioners of um, mindfulness or presence or whatever, as it's so conceived, many of them begin to want more than that talking about people who've been practicing really for some years, depends a lot on the soul type as well, on the eros, and I've talked about that elsewhere. But um, many long-term practitioners who are practicing in that, in that kind of way, um, where the mindfulness or the present or whatever you're going to call it, is, is kind of doesn't have a, a dimensionality and that, that ongoing opening of the eros psychologist is not, explo- not um, supported. Um, they begin to want something more than that kind of mindfulness and presence. So in most cases, in a lot of those cases, they'll begin to explore other paths. Um, either they'll change paths, or they'll use other paths that are kind of have, have a, a bit more psychological richness or a bit more allowance of something a bit more um, erotic or, or whatever it is, um, or devotional or this or that. Or they get into um, more study. Let's say I really want to study mindfulness. And, and again, without being aware that study itself becomes uh, is imbued with fantasy, that one is soul-making in the study. It's not just I want to um, kind of intellectually understand more, if the study is really rich. So what is... But but there's often a blindness behind the... There's not the questioning or realizing fully what is behind this movement to want to expand from just this flat, uh, flatly conceived sense of presence or mindfulness. Um... So in this idea of living life to the full, which um, can be in some, in some, for some people, you know, quite a, quite a commonly used idea. Um, how question? How do I know it's full? What does that mean? How do, full means it's reached its maximum. Living life to the full. How do I know that you're? you're how do you know that it's full? That it's reached its maximum? How do you know that more is not possible? What does it mean? Um, when I don't just mean more flatly, horizontally. How, how do you know that m- more of even what life actually means is not possible? Um, so what is included in this fullness that, you, uh, that one alludes to, if, if one's using that phrase or hearing that phrase? Fullness, to me, must include meaningfulness. And as we touched on earlier, um, much earlier in this course, um, meaningfulness means more than only actualizable meanings or purposes. So they're important in our life too. I had this purpose, I achieved it, or whatever, and that, that was a, a, a meaning for me. But, it, but meaningfulness must actually be something infinite and not ever finally achievable. It always is bigger than what I can achieve. And wrapped up in meaningfulness, or wrapped together, are meaningfulness and um, fantasy or image. And, and as we said, that also uh, has, has a beyond to it.
So, uh, but even even still, it's like living life to the full. If it includes meaningfulness, then wrapped up in meaningfulness, we something a fantasy and image, and then it's no longer that flat thing anymore. And we could also ask, you know, really what we're saying is, what is life in this version? Living life to the what is life? What's included in this um, vision or idea, both of full and life? And again, what is not included or not even uh, intuited as a possibility, not even admitted as a possibility? So one of the things with that is, um, is the whole notion of what life, as I said, what life is, which, which, and related to what life is, is what, what is the world? Because we live life in the world. We seem to live life in the world. And I can't remember if I mentioned this on a previous retreat, but there's a writer called Robert Bella, and I think he, he wrote a book called Beyond Belief. And he points out um, that, excuse me, what he calls world rejection, um, is uh, was kind of very uh, common to religious traditions and spiritual traditions, um, only really in a certain sandwiched chunk of the history of the world. So um, before, say, about 1000 BC, um, you wouldn't get any kind of religions or teachings um, that were about... Uh, rejecting the world so much. Um, This is his take. I I think it's not quite so... um, I don't know enough about the history, but I'm I'm sure it's not quite so squeaky clean black and white. But um, so maybe like predominantly characteristic of religious traditions and spiritual thought, etc., before... Uh, about a thousand BC was that they were all this worldly there was no sense of escaping the world to some transcendent unfabricated beyond or, or whatever um, and then then there was a long period where religions and spiritual traditions and thinking actually were kind of more geared toward world rejection so Pali Canon Buddhism Pali Canon Buddhism as I would read it and it's quite hard you'd have to really take out huge chunks of the of the Pali Canon um, to construe it as not what Bella would call world world rejecting but Buddha's kind of hell-bent on ending rebirth on getting beyond this world, ending appearances once and for all, not being reborn again, going, uh, dissolving, or whatever one might say, into the into the transcendent, unfabricated. So was that, and Buddhism wasn't alone. Uh, there were m- many others that um, sought to end rebirth in in that kind of movement, uh, something similar. But also, so before 1000 BC, and then from 1000 BC until until almost the start of the the modernist period, um, where, again, in our time, it's quite rare, this this kind of uh, orientation or aspiration or attitude of world rejection. I mean, you do get ISIS and all all these kind of uh, people, but they're they're also just very, well, confused, to say the least. But but generally speaking, again, generally speaking, broad brushstrokes, um, characteristic of both let's call it ancient times, before a thousand, and modern times is not so much world rejection. So this living life to the full actually takes its place, um, and you can hear it. It's not something you would ever find in the Pali Canon about living life to the full, tasting life fully, or anything like that. It's a modernist notion, and that's why it uh, feels so comfortable to people and and makes so much sense. Oh, that's what mindfulness is for. Um rather than mindfulness is in the sake of um, not being reborn, it's in the sake of transcending all fabrication of perception, unfabricating, so you know the transcendent unfabricated, and then at some point you cannot be reborn into the world of fabrication at all, of any perception, not be reborn. Um, that's not a very common modern notion. Um, so wrapped up with this living life to the full is a certain relationship uh, or view or and stance of uh, to the world uh, in relationship to the world but also of practice and the world 
So wrapped up in it, I think, is um, uh, a massive toning down or reversal uh, of any kind of um, uh, aversion to the world or anti because anti-eros to the world. Um, and more there is in living life to the full, there's, there's a modicum of sort of um, allowance for or, or inclusion of a kind of a certain amount of, let's say, relish or juiciness in with regard to the world. That's why it's attractive to us, because we don't really go, in modernist times, most people don't really go for this um, get-beyond-the-world thing. So there's something we could almost call it eros, but it's really in a, quite a, 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 a limited sense. Um, there's a there's a re, there's a view and relationship with the world there, and a certain um, stance to the world that's more common and and therefore more easily popular these days. Um, so it's not quite eros in the way that we would say, but let's say something like that. There's some kind of um, <coughs> mild erotic connection between between self and, and world and life and world but if the eros is really big and again I've talked about this before, if the eros is really big <coughs> or if it gets to be bigger through the um, fertilizing uh, of the eros psyche logos dynamic in the ways that we've described then one can have both uh, and one will have at some point both an eros for the world and the eros for the beyond, the transcendent, the unfabricated, whatever. Um, and the eros for the world, if if it gets wrapped up in the allowed to um, invigorate and catalyze the soul-making dynamic of eros psyche logos, it will start. We will start perceiving um, dimensions to to the world, to ourselves, to others, and there will be a kind of divine immanence that will come forth um, through, in, with, as that dimensionality that's, that's in, through, with the, the world itself, not as something beyond. And, at the same time, there will be eros for the transcendent. So big eros, when a person has a big eros, or when their eros is allowed to become big and work so that it becomes big, there won't just be this attitude um, of kind of mild erotic um, connection with something called life and the world, um, there will be something much fuller than that. It won't just be that mild eros for life and the world and a kind of abhorrence for a beyond, a transcendent beyond. There will be, in some weird way, what Bella might call both world rejection and world um, what affirmation, I'm not sure what the opposite would be, love or loving. But we will have both um, erotic thrusts, erotic openings uh, and desires. As I said, when when the eros is allowed to get in, to stimulate and then get involved and and uh, uh, enriched and deepened and widened in the soul-making dynamic, then life and the world begin to uh, gain dimensions, gain imaginal, uh, uh, be, be perceived imaginally um, as image in all the way that means, and they become in that way infinite. But exactly because. Uh, for the reasons that I mentioned when we were talking about dukkha, because things don't have um, sharp uh, and hard edges. They have this infinity of possible dimensions and uh, uh, soft, elastic edges to them, um, so that life and the world become infinite that way. Um, And uh, we can also, we're attracted to that infinity there. And then it's not, fullness is not possible. Um, but it's also possible that there's eros, as I said, for the unfabricated. And then there's that particular kind of fathomlessness and infinity, if we can call it that, to the unfabricated. Both, both are possible. Uh, Loving life comes to mean more and more. It comes to embrace more and more. And I don't just mean embrace more and more uh, experiences because we learn to be mindful or present or whatever to more and more experiences. Um, It certainly comes to mean much more than enjoying um, 
vivaciously, uh, you know, a good time and the sensual and interesting pleasures and experiences that are available to many human beings today, if they're affluent enough, going to parties and dinner parties and skiing and going to beaches and wild water swimming and um, fine dining or whatever it is. Um, that kind of loving life and sort of the the zest for that that, that uh, we, some people have. Uh, loving life can mean way, way more than that. As, as it becomes ensouled, loving life means something much more than that. It may also come to mean being uh, deeply and widely and, and reverently attuned to the beauty and, and to the mystery of being. It may mean to love life, it may mean to endlessly discover and create an infinity of dimensions of beauty and of mystery in life. Yet, it's so deeply that is not only life, but that the whole of existence to which one is keenly, profoundly, devotedly, devotedly uh, receptive, attuned, open, sensitive, in 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 the sensing of soul, in the movement, in the in the love of soul making, and in that whole relationship, stance, attitude, poise that that uh, favors, opens up, so that becomes the inclination, the whole of existence. One is uh, attuned to in this profound and devoted receptivity, open sensitivity. And that whole of existence uh, includes death. So that in, in loving life uh, so deeply, one is not afraid to let its appearances fade. One is not afraid to let go into death. Loving life if if we if that really opens for us, loving life means loving life and death. It's more than only accepting death we're talking about. Because a true love, a soul love, ensouls all all that it embraces, all that it touches. So death too is ensouled, become image, become deeply and endlessly beautiful, a deep and endless mystery. And all that is, is opened again by by the journey into deep unfabricating and by the sensing of soul. So we get these ideas, and again they influence us, and they and they may limit uh, what our practice is, and also how we how we uh, sense existence, and then how we live our life. Another idea that um, many of you will be familiar with is is uh, mostly used in the Mahayana traditions. It's, it's spreading now, and it originally came from the Pali Canon. But it's just, that's the aspiration of bodhicitta, that idea, the aspiration of bodhicitta. And that can actually, that uh, is delineated as having a, an ult- there's an ultimate bodhicitta and there's a relative bodhicitta. And the ultimate bodhicitta is actually the, the uh, realization of emptiness. That's the ultimate Buddha mind is bodhicitta. The ultimate awakened mind is is the um, is the uh, understanding and the perception of emptiness. Relative bodhicitta is what most people are more familiar with. It's this aspiration to attain awakening, to attain Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings, so that one can serve them. Um, the Certainly, the relative bodhicitta, um, and in some meanings also the ultimate, is is based on, or the possibility there is based on the notion of Buddha nature, or Tathagatagarbha in uh, in 
Sanskrit, Tathagata Garbha. Um, and so it's because we have Buddha nature that we can, uh, that there's the possibility that we can become awakened and, um, uh, and, and become Buddhas and serve other beings. But this Tathagata Garbha, this Buddha nature, has, has really widely different meanings. It's used in very different ways across the, uh, um, even just the Mahayana traditions. Um, I'll come back to that, actually. Um, what I'm interested in a few things here with this idea. One is, how, how does this work? for us, this aspiration, if it's something that's alive for you, this bodhicitta aspiration, if it's actually part of your practice, for some people it will be, and for others, not really, um, and that's that's fine, but if, if it is, how does it function? Um, here I think one of the things going on, is it, it's worth pointing out, is um, the involvement of idea in image, or or sometimes the um, the possibility of them being interchangeable, even in um, aiming at or aligning ourselves with or being devoted to something more than this life. So usually, the bodhicitta aspiration is is viewed over lifetimes. I'm I'm on a track that will ripen in in awakening in Buddhahood in future lifetimes. Um, and so is that aligning, is that aiming, is that devotion to something more than this life, um, is that living life to the full? If I, don't, if I don't think of it in terms of future lives, then just the, um, the value and the ideal of that kind of self-giving, that kind of outpouring, that kind of serving and dedication, that kind of goodness, there's um, a kind of ultimacy, uh, there's a kind of ultimate value, an ultimate ideal there. If that's what's going on in the aiming and aligning and devotion, that being meaningful to you, um, then again, is it living life to the full? Because it's more to do with something that is uh, either ripens uh, beyond this life, or that in the very kind of ultimacy of the value and the ideal, it kind of um, is beyond what can actually fully be reached ever. So I mentioned, I think I mentioned, but I'll come back to it because I feel it's an important thread to weave through. Um, Goodness, beauty, uh, love, whatever. These values have kind of no limit to them. They always have a beyond. They're always transcendent of wherever we are. So to be, to aim at, to align oneself with, to be dedicated to and devoted to, I mean, and to be moved by those kind of ideals that are wrapped up in the bodhicitta aspiration, they need, it needs to be reflected in my life. Uh, I mean, it's quite possible that someone can just sort of mouth the bodhicitta aspiration and then, and then live a sort of completely unscrupulous life, etc., without any dedication to other beings. But it needs to translate uh, to be to, to you know we're talking about stuff that moves my heart, that moves my soul. That I'm really I can feel my being aligned with that. I practice. Um, bowing to that, aligning my being, sitting in the dedication, sitting in the devotion, uh, kneeling towards that, feeling the reverberation of the being, the heart, the soul, the energy body, with this um, ideal of bodhicitta aspiration. And I can feel that, the meaningfulness of that, the beauty, I can feel the effect that has on my soul, on my energy body, on my heart, so talking about that, in that then, A, it must translate somehow or other into the life, and how I choose to live, what I choose to do, um, in, in the widest possible way. Um, or there must be, at least be the um, attempts in one's life to live in the direction of that ideal. But B, it is just a direction, either because I have this, it can't ripen, and it can't possibly ripen that I'm going to be a Buddha in this in this life, especially if I 
have a Mahayana idea of a Buddha, um, uh, or because because in being actually primarily um, a kind of uh, conglomeration of values uh, and uh, and thus an idea, um, it has um, something that's beyond. Values always have a transcendent dimension. Some these kind of values, they, we can't possibly fulfil them. However good I am, it's possible to be gooder. However uh, um, uh, loving I am, it's possible to be somehow more loving. Uh, however beautiful um, something is, it's possible somehow for it to be more beautiful. At least, at least one might just conceive of that possibility. There's always a kind of transcendent beyond to values. And as I think I mentioned earlier, I'll return to, that's one of the ways they bear uh, the relationship of values as ideas, values, goodness, beauty, whatever. Um, the way they relate to and have similarities with overlap with bear on images. But in the fact that it's somehow beyond this life is that if we relate it to what we were just talking about, this third idea, bodhicitta aspiration to the second idea, this living life to the full, is it somehow more than living life to the full? Because I can't, I can't actually um, uh, achieve it. The fullness, the ripening, is beyond this life, or in in the tran- in the ever transcendent, uh, that a value is somewhat partially achievable, but it's always going to have this transcendent. Or if the bodhicitta aspiration manifests as a kind of image somehow through, let's say, a, 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 a tantric deity um, kind of embodying or representing that bodhicitta aspiration. Um, and so the aiming at and the aligning with and the devotion to is, is an image. Um, image too, in the way that we've been talking about, the erotic imagine will always have this more and beyond part of what we've talked about. It's part of what the Eros will, will create and discover. There's always a beyond. So as an image, if there is an image of Tara, of Avalokiteshvara or something, and it becomes uh, something that that kind of condenses the bodhicitta aspiration for us, there's both, there's idos and icon there. There's icon in the sense of it's imaginal. It's an image that's imaginal that has that infinite depth and potential to open. And it's idos, it's idea as well. It's this conglomeration of, of values. Um, so there's something there about uh, image and idea, how they relate, but uh, there's something here about uh, well, just linking it slightly to what we said before about it being more than living life to the full. It's it's beyond living life to the full. But we don't need to dwell on that. This word for Buddha nature that I uh, mentioned, Tathagata Garbha. Uh, (coughs) Tathagata has its own whole etymology and stuff, but we could just say Buddha is is another word. Buddha Garbha um, is another word for Buddha. Garba is the interesting word here. So garba can mean a womb or a matrix. It can also mean an embryo, so that which is in a womb um, or emerges from uh, a womb. Um, I'm taking this etymology and things uh, from a passage by Shempen Hukan in a book, I think, called The Buddha Within, um, which is quite an interesting book. Um, so garba in Sanskrit means womb or matrix or embryo or um, for instance something like the gold that is in in a in a gold mine or the diamonds that are in in a diamond mine or whatever. Um, um, so it has it, it it can there's quite a range of what it can mean and um, it can also garba can also mean born from. So uh, so you see with this. Partly because of the the variation in what the word garba can mean, partly also because of the ways that Sanskrit works in terms of making kind of compound words that you stick together and then you can 
relate the two words of the compound, Buddha and Garba, Tathagata and Garba, you can relate them uh, in different ways to each other to, to generate different meanings. So it's an inherently kind of uh, ambiguous, or, or rather a, a language that's amenable to multiple interpretations, very common, very commonly. So, for example, um, when it said all beings are... Uh, and again, there's oftentimes no no verbs in in Sanskrit sentences. So this is all beings Buddha Garba. So all beings are the Buddha Garba, or all beings have Buddha Garba. Um, you know that much is uh, uh, ambiguous or open. Let's say. I'm mentioning all these for uh, again. There's a possibility of meditating on Bodhicitta as. Uh, a meditation on an idea, a set of values, and a devotional meditation that really involves the energy body, the soul, the heart, the being, the focus, the surrender, the intention. Um, and there's a meditation that can be more on an image. If we talk about, we said, the notion of bodhicitta as an idea was rooted in, or dependent on, uh, the notion of uh, Buddha nature, Tathagata Garbha. If we go through the different possibilities of what Tathagata Garbha might mean, and then this idea of all beings Tathagata Garbha, all beings are the Buddha nature, or all beings have the Buddha nature, or all beings have... Uh, it, it, I'm going to go through some different possible variants of meaning it could, it could, uh, it could have, that kind of common Sanskrit uh, phrase. Um, in the Mahayana tradition, and hopefully what you can get from this is um, it generates different uh, meanings, and each meaning can be an idea that can be converted to a way of looking. So for example, um, all beings, Tathagata Garbha, could be all beings are um, a womb of the Buddha, or all beings are the womb of the Buddha, or all beings are a womb of the Buddhas. Um, and even then, it could be uh, a womb of the Buddha, could be the womb that gives birth, or that holds the Buddha before a Buddha manifests. Or it could be, um, the womb of the Buddha could be the Buddha's womb. So, can you, can you if you, you have to, play with this, you actually have to think about it a little bit. All beings are the womb that give birth to the Buddha. So that means you are a womb from this from this idea, which can be tra- translated into a way of looking with a little playing with it, and then meditated on. All beings are the womb that gives birth to a Buddha. You are a womb, a matrix that gives birth to the Buddha, to a Buddha. What does what does that do? Your body, your soul, your psyche, your practice. And again, uh, one can actually take that in quite a, a flatly conceived way. Oh yeah. So that means if I really practice hard, um, then I'll, you know, become a Buddha. Um, or you are the womb that gives birth to a Buddha. Uh, what might that mean, sensed more with soul, felt sensed into more imaginally? What that might mean? What might, might that mean for this moment? Not just as a future potential that tells you to, yeah, hit the cushion again, practice harder. Or, as I said, you are the Buddha's womb. All beings are a womb of the Buddhas. And again, play with this. Turn the phrase over. See that e- each one of these can have different kind of, almost like directions of meaning and they can become um, temporarily crystallized as something to, to meditate on and then an, an idea and then through which you, you can see another or see yourself and see, um, see beings. And again, because Garba can mean born from... All beings are born from the Buddha. What does that mean? What might that mean? All beings are born from the Buddha. 
Okay, can you feel into that? Can you sense into it with soul? So there's there's a kind of soulful thinking go, that has to go on a little bit, and and kind of hearing it poetically. All beings are born from Buddha. What Buddha? Where? How? What does it mean? What might it mean? Or, again, it could be all beings are Tathagata Garba. All beings are the Buddha's hidden treasure. Again, it's the Buddha's hidden treasure. So that, again, has this um, one possibility. There's a corollary. We, we are the hidden treasure of God. We are God's necessity. We are the divine's necessity. We are the divine's treasure. If I participate in it. If I see it a certain way, and it means me, and you, and my life, and my perception. All beings are the Buddha's hidden treasure. The diamonds, the gold in the mine. We belong, you know, that's corollary with this idea of belonging to the divine, or having our roots in the divine. is that communicated to us? How is that felt? And maybe it's communicated and felt through through other images. Again, in, in Tibetan, um, which is mostly where we get this Tathagata Garb, well actually also Zen, but um, uh, when we get it through the Tibetan at least, um, it gets translated in a certain way, apparently in Tibetan, I don't know Tibetan, but so it's um, all beings have the essence of the Buddha. That could mean um, all being the essence are all beings have the essence that the Buddha is or all beings have the essence that becomes the Buddha, have an essence that becomes the Buddha. So again, if you're, if you're listening to this, you probably have to rewind. If you want to get into this, rewind and just write these down and then take individual ones and, and, and meditate them on them, which means playing with them as ideas, very lightly, very the poetic ideas. And then when something feels, oh yeah, that's, that's lovely. Um, and then, then it's like, okay, can I sit with that and let that idea kind of percolate down into the soul and infuse the sensing and the sensing the soul of oneself of other, of, of, of life. Again, essence um, in, in Tibetan apparently has, has the meaning of like um, some uh, kind of good stuff that's uh, extracted by purification from something else. So for example, gold from gold ore or sesame oil from ses- sesame seeds. All beings have the essence of Buddha. So there's actually many possibilities here. All beings Tathagata Karba. Sarava Sattva Tathagata Karba. And uh, one can see the flexibility again. Plurality, flexibility. And, and there's a lot of beauty here um, and a lot of art possible. Uh, and 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 that can we can get quite adept at translating this kind of thing into a way of looking or letting it translate into a way of looking, sensing the soul, sensing self, sensing other, as I said. <clears throat> Just want to finish today with one with one uh, other thing to point out about this bodhicitta aspiration um, that. It may well be that in um, more, if you're used to this bodhicitta aspiration and uh, from some Buddhist tradition or other, it may well be that um, it functions through an image, say an image of Tara or Kichvara, or even a, a, a kind of more vague um, internal image that you've come up with of, of what a bodhisattva is and what a bodhisattva does or uh, etc. Um, but it, it may well be that that image is kind of universal and, uh, let's say, generic. 
we have a kind of universal generic image of a bodhisattva, either because it's a uh, one given to us, say Avalokiteshvara or Tara or, or whatever, or just operating for us in our psyche, whether it's <coughs> um, kind of uh, perceived vividly, clearly, or more more vaguely, it's it may well be kind of universal and generic. It can, <coughs> in that becoming image or being given an image, it can lose um, the particularities um, of one's own personhood. <coughs> it can lose the kind of um, particular ways of this infinite echoing and mirroring of my personhood. So it just becomes a vague sort of a vague image of being a bodhisattva or moving towards Buddhahood or whatever. (coughs) Do you understand? So that's quite common in a lot of these um, traditions is, is, again, we've touched on it so many times, to lose the particularities and to lose or erase or make more vague the personhood and the particular ways the personhood is echoed, mirrored. My personhood, your personhood, in all this. So we're somehow just aiming for a, a, a universal, generic, or somewhat vague uh, bodhisattvahood. Contrast that with a too sharp um, delineation of exactly what I'm going to be and what it's going to look like and how I particularly will will do this. Um, too too tight, too rigid boundaries as well. The Jungian concept of individuation is quite an interesting concept, or at least can be moulded to be something more in line with what we might be interested in. Um, it's (coughs) It's a moving towards, or a growing towards, and a groping towards, um, my individual sort of blossoming, but that blossoming has no end. Um, and so it's, <coughs> it's personal. It's often, in Jungian therapy, I think it would be, and it's certainly in the way we're talking about it, it's, it's mediated or supported by the imaginal. So that in Jungian therapy, one would be looking at one's dreams and images and things that came up as, um, for at some point, beginning to give us the clues uh, as as the analysis matures to give us the clues of the, the threads of the individuation for me. My individuation is different from yours, who different from the next person. So it's very personal and very unique, uh, and retains my particulars and maybe even my. Uh, particular difficulties are are redeemed and transformed, not erased necessarily. Um, so that's more akin to the kind of work we're doing. And if we, if it's mediated and supported through images, this movement to um, uh, something beyond this angel out ahead, Henri Corbin talked about, um, then it's my angel out ahead. There's a difference between that idea, what's the angel out ahead for me, or the angels, because sometimes it's plural, oftentimes it's plural, Um, but then it's individual. It's not just Tara, or it's not just Avalokiteshvara, or whatever. Um, It's unique to me, individual. There might be a few different angels calling me, and that's also interesting as well. But that becomes my movement, let's say, towards something like... um, the bodhicitta aspiration, or I might give it a different name. I might just say it's this, uh, the images that are calling me, the angels that I'm moving towards. It's the process of my individuation. Whatever language, it it can be more um, inclusive of and um, richly fulfilling and attentive to and involving my personhood, your personhood, and all the particulars, all the particulars of that. But the angel out ahead um, is image, is icon, and therefore infinite and unfathomable and always having a beyond. It's always out ahead. We never reach that angel out ahead fully. We never, if we move towards it, it takes a step back, but it's, we're always in connection with that. There's always that erotic um, uh, relationship and coupling. It's with us. Uh, there's the eros both ways. There's the togetherness, but we never become it fully. Um, my p- 
process there, if that's what I've got, my soul-making journey or opening, is also then based, so it's based on my image, it's also based on my values. So we can talk about values like compassion and goodness and love and, and uh, generosity, and but there's, there's perhaps a... They have to be translated personally. Like, when one really starts to attune the heart and the soul with ideas and ideals, I- ideals are ideas and values are ideals are ideas, um, they're the particular way uh, generosity speaks to me. The particular feeling and soul opening and resonance I get with with that, um, which is also again mediated through images and stories and examples, um, but it's a, it's again it's a combination of idos and icon that we're talking about here. But it has to be personal. I have to somehow it's got it's got to be a really personal connection. Um, there's a philosopher that I've just discovered very recently that I'm um, <clears throat> really starting to get very interested in, Nikolai Hartmann. And um, he talks about ethics a lot. He talks about a lot of stuff. But um, he, one of the things he talks about is, is personality and the development of personality. Um, and he says, he's, he writes, it's not something you can kind of... Um, how do you develop your personality, your particular personality, your unique personality? You can't just copy someone else you admire. Um, so he's, he, you can't imitate, because that would just be um, uh, uh, a, a liar, and you won't be kind of true to yourself, too true to the image that wants to come through you, the ideal, in a more platonic sense, you that wants to come through. I, I would actually insert that still someone uh, someone else we might imitate them but they become become image for us and that my being with that meditatively and um, resonating with it and being moved by it is part of me developing um, let's say developing my personality I think he means that in a much broader sense than somehow some of the more tight meanings that, that shallow meanings that sometimes gets uh, ways that sometimes gets used um but but one of the points he tries to make is you you can't imitate someone you can't just kind of m- kind of chase personality itself chase this development of we could say what's the particular way that your bodhicitta will come to fruition the particular personal way your bodhicitta will come to fu- fruition if we take this original um uh, idea of the bodhisattva and bodhicitta which was there in the Pali Canon, actually, and then Mayana really amplified it. And we kind of um, take it and open it up according to some of the ideas that we've been discussing. Uh, what, what might it do? Um, but Hartman says, uh, you can't just kind of um, make personality happen by focusing on personality. Um, personality comes, uh, he says, personality as a value is never by its nature, actualized in reflection upon itself, but in reflection upon other values. In other words, it's through meditating uh, this devotion to, this feeling the effect of, putting myself in relationship to, in soul relationship to, in energy body relationship to, in heart relationship to, in meaningfulness relationship to, the ideas and the values that touch my soul. It's through that and through choosing and committing to act on them, and uh, it's through that that my personality is forged. My particular, uh, it's through that that I move towards my angel, let's say. Um, so one's, he's con- uh, one's personality, you, 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 you have to follow your own feeling of value your own kind of, uh, which is an idea, and this soulful meditation on ideas. Um, and, you know, you can, no one can kind of give you your particular kind of value resonances, the particular uh, kind of distribution of emphases and resonances that your soul has with different values at any different time. And that happens also um 
in and through meeting life and the complexity of life and the joys and the ups and downs and the difficulties and the uh, ambiguity, ethical ambiguities and choice moments, etc. So these ideas have to be obviously connected to life, but they also, again, they have this kind of beyond, beyond dimension, always. I think we'll stop there. Uh, and then, as I said, starting with more familiar ideas and just trying to open them up, offer some different possibilities for practice, and then we'll we'll gradually get into more, um, prob- probably for, for some people, less familiar ideas and less familiar practices.